Hello and welcome to a special 500th edition of The Curator on Monocle 24 with me, Markus Hippi. Over the next 60 minutes we'll be bringing together all five episodes of our series exploring the rise of vaccine hesitation, including the effects of faith on people's health when it comes to having the COVID jab. A great example of this outside of the United States is in the small country of Bhutan. The government and public health authorities worked with Buddhist monks there to identify, quote-unquote, auspicious period to begin the vaccination campaign. And once that was identified and it was kind of blessed as such by the Buddhist monks, the Bhutan vaccinated 93% of its population in a period of two weeks. That's all to come over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Marcus Hippi. Whilst many wealthy countries have easy access to COVID-19 vaccines, one of the major barriers to achieving a fully vaccinated population across the world is resistance from communities who don't want the inoculation. Born out of reasons as diverse as government mistrust, religious beliefs and conspiracy theories, this week's globalists chose to explore this troubling social phenomenon in a special five-part series. From journalists in the midst of it, to health researchers and virologists from Perth to Chicago, we looked at the problems this scepticism can cause and how it should be combated. In the first episode, we speak to Dr. Katie Atwell, a researcher at the University of Western Australia. Katie specialises in vaccine uptake and mandatory vaccination programmes and began by telling us how hesitancy towards COVID-19 shots has taken hold. As pharma companies race to get a COVID-19 vaccine, there have been a growing number of anti-vaccination conspiracy theories online, according to... I had a wonderful nurse called Lily and she said, you're going to feel a shock. I literally did not feel a thing. But a new tall tale spiked with the pandemic, one that 44% of Republicans believed that he would use the vaccine rollout to mass implant Americans with microchips to track their movements. It was totally pain-free. I, I didn't feel a thing. Uh, the lovely woman who vaccinated me made it all really easy. Um, I guess like many people, I, I feel... So the development of vaccine hesitancy is complex. In some cases, I think we need to think about it as not necessarily a new problem. You know, for as long as vaccines have existed, there has been resistance to those vaccines. The age that we're living in, the the current moment, and that includes, of course, the COVID moment, is sort of characterised by something a little bit different. When I think about vaccine hesitancy as a problem, I see it as something that has arisen in some cases from some things that are important and good, but also from some things that are probably not so good, but that are broader social changes. All of that deep thinking and angst extends into the way that we engage with our health more broadly. Anytime you need a serious medical treatment or even a not serious medical treatment for that matter, they do all this informed consent with us. You know, we're talked through all the implications of what might happen and told to make our own decisions. And so we're kind of told, don't let the medical system run rampant over you. Be a thoughtful consumer, make good decisions, speak up, ask questions. Oh, but can you please not do that for vaccines because you just should have them. Vaccination is kind of taking its place amidst this complex set of relations. 
I'm leading this study called Coronavax, where we're looking at various aspects of the vaccine rollout and kind of community attitudes towards that. One of the components we have is a social media study led by my colleague, Dr. Tal Harper. And one of the things that he's described is that the kind of attitudes and views about vaccination and the, the content of the conspiracies are moving across borders. And sometimes they're transmitted around Australia in contexts that don't even make sense. And so people will actually be repeating information that's not relevant for this jurisdiction. And likewise, I mean, you know, we all know some of the key, you know, ideas of the vaccine allegedly containing microchips, etc. And the sort of misinformation and disinformation can be attributed to having set up these kind of core tropes that then keep getting rehashed and repeated. The claim we're looking at right now, the U.S. is developing an antivirus that includes a chip to track your movement. Let's fact check this. This is completely fiction. Absolutely not. This is wrong. We shouldn't assume that people will stay in a position forever. That's something that we should remember when we're thinking about sort of strategies and engagement with those people. There are some tried and trusted strategies we know, I guess, to try and uh, mitigate against vaccine hesitancy before you get it. But one of the key things is to try and be out in the field early and actually understand what the public is thinking and feeling. Risk communication is another really important feature and really that involves trying to have as much transparency as possible about decision making. And from my experience, I've been someone who's become increasingly called on as a public commentator. And sometimes I'm being asked to comment on something where it's all still unfolding and and we don't yet have the data. So my own particular version of risk communication has been to try and be really transparent about that. So thinking about mandatory vaccination with the advent of COVID-19, I've definitely pivoted to looking at whether COVID-19 vaccines could or should be mandatory. And of course, the questions that that then provokes are, what does mandatory mean? What are the consequences for people who don't have the vaccine? Who gets to set the mandate? Is it a government decision? Is it something that employers might decide for employees or that employers might decide for their clients and customers? What should exemptions look like? As well, there are really strong political cultures where in some places it's acceptable to mandate. So for example, we have very strong vaccine mandates in Australia at a state and federal level uh, for children and children can be denied access to education and care if they're not vaccinated and families can lose social security payments if their kids aren't vaccinated. So we as a society seem to really accept that. If we're to think about the kind of ethical proportionality questions we might have about mandating COVID-19 vaccination, there are some important things to think about. And one is, what do you do for people who don't want to be vaccinated? And I think that's really where the rubber hits the road, if you like. It only becomes a compliance problem if someone really doesn't want to do it. Here, I think that Israel have struck a really nice example of how to handle this. On your mark. Get set, go. Today is the day all vaccinated Israelis have been waiting for. It's the day they will begin to have special exclusive privileges that the unvaccinated will not. They have a thing called a green passport. Your green passport is your passport into public life, so to speak, if you want to go to the pub or if you want to be at a soccer match. 
you need to show that you're vaccinated. And if you haven't been vaccinated, you need to show that you've recently tested negative. So that's really useful because it allows government to frame it as this is a kind of public health initiative. This is about protecting people in public space. And that, that's why the, the negative test is a lovely opt out because, yeah, sure, negative. Yeah, you should be fine too. You should be fine to come in as well. But of course, it's pretty vile going to have a COVID test. So what you're doing is imposing a burden that makes vaccinating more appealing than opting out. And that's, from a behavioural science perspective, pretty smart. Now, of course, there will be people who would say, from a kind of civil liberties perspective, that's too much, that's too burdensome. And I guess that then would come back to political culture and what your society is willing to tolerate. And I think COVID-19 in itself has been a fascinating example of what we as a society are willing to tolerate in a lot of realms, because it seems like we had this choice right at the beginning of COVID-19. Were we going to privilege saving human life, which of course is often something we say we want to save, but we never want to save it at all costs. Otherwise we'd have no planes, no cars, no drink. You know, we we would have a real um, limit of all the things that people do that can kill them, right? And we don't do that. So we tolerate certain levels of risk, but it did seem like every society had to decide for itself, were we going to really privilege protecting human life? And that really meant protecting people with comorbidities, older people at the cost of our economic functioning, or were we going to try and keep everything open and, sorry, some, some people are going to die? And it seems like the countries that made that second decision, which was the United Kingdom in the first instance and the United States, you know, haven't done so well. It seems like that decision to prioritise human life has been a good one. So in such a context, I think it makes it difficult to justify mandatory vaccination on one hand because it's sort of like there's no disease here. I think when you've got the disease running rampant, when people are dying, if people are refusing the vaccine, I don't want to say outright, yep, mandate is a good idea. I guess what I would say is that the value proposition of a mandate would seem quite strong. That was Dr Katie Atwell, a researcher at the University of Western Australia. Now, one of the factors driving hesitancy is a person's faith and religious beliefs. In the second part of this series, we hear from Ibu Patel, president of Interfaith Youth Corps, a Chicago-based non-profit organization that aims to promote interfaith cooperation. Ibu explains how his organization employs a faith-based approach to combat vaccine hesitancy and just how crucial this is to reaching herd immunity in the U.S. For us here, pastors, they have huge followings. And whatever they say is taken as gospel truth. I happen to have been a parishioner here at the service, the last service that Tim uh, presented uh, before he was diagnosed with COVID-19. That experience made us become very aware. And as a pastor us, uh, here, there are people sending you things, please, please look at this, please pray for me. I'm really worried about this. I'm scared because people can't work out whether it's true or not. Health and religion have always been mixed, right? I mean, there's a great African-American spiritual about there being a bomb in Gilead, for example. The Quran is described as a healing. Yoga was not invented by athletic wear companies. It was invented by Hindu sages. So we shouldn't be surprised that health and religion 
are mixed. And we also shouldn't be surprised that there's a major question about trust. And the question is, when it comes to people's health and their understandings of their body, who do they trust to guide them along those lines? And it turns out that, at least in the United States, there's an awful lot of trust in certain segments of the population of religious leaders. This is the case for white evangelicals, it's the case for African-American and Latino Protestants, it's the case for a whole range of Muslims and Hindus and Catholics. And so I think that there's a powerful partnership to be made between religious leaders and public health and government authorities. Actually, a great example of this outside of the United States is in the small country of Bhutan. The government and public health authorities worked with Buddhist monks there to identify, quote unquote, auspicious period to begin the vaccination campaign. And once that was identified and it was kind of blessed as such by the Buddhist monks, the Bhutan vaccinated 93% of its population in a period of two weeks. So according to this major study that we just put out, it turns out that 26% of all vaccine-hesitant Americans would be encouraged by some kind of a faith-based approach towards vaccine uptake. It turns out that amongst white evangelicals who go to church, almost half of them would be encouraged by some kind of a faith-based message or engagement, and about a third of African-American and Latino Protestants. So these are quite high numbers who say that basically they would trust a clergy member encouraging them to get a vaccine, or if there was an information session held in the congregation, or if they heard that somebody within their church had gotten a vaccine and it had gone well. And so basically IFYC is using this research to inform our action campaign. We're calling it the Faith in the Vaccine Ambassadors campaign, and it trains college students and faculty members at, at largely religiously affiliated colleges to work within their congregations, to hold information sessions, to make phone calls, to start conversations about the importance of the vaccine, not just for medical and health reasons, but also for spiritual and religious purposes. So a great example of this is the idea that the body is a temple for the Holy Spirit, right? And so you, you treat your body as the place that is sacred. And there's a lot of particularly African-American clergy who are talking about the vaccine as something that facilitates that. Welcome to today's edition of Clergy and Clinicians. Our show today is really exciting. It's about helping folks in the greater Bronzeville neighborhood and beyond understand health issues that affect them. And they're gonna be answered by many of the leading experts from Northwestern Medicine. You know, there's a remarkable data point in our research around this. And that data point is that of African-Americans who go to church, 57% say that they are encouraged to take the vaccine. And that compares to 43% of African-Americans who don't go to church. And what that basically says is that African-American clergy are encouraging their congregants to take the vaccine and those congregants are listening. Incidentally, the numbers are basically reversed when it comes to white evangelicals. White evangelicals who go to church say that they are less likely to take the vaccine than white evangelicals who don't go to church. And what that indicates is that there's a lot of white evangelical leaders who are either ambivalent and who are not saying much, and some of the loudest voices are actually discouraging the vaccine. Well, I think there are a lot of pastors who are. They're doing uh, vaccination drives uh, in their congregations. They're, they're helping people to understand what can be gained. 
all of which is to say that we do in fact see what you might call a quote-unquote clergy effect, but it's not just collared religious leaders. It's anybody within the community. And so there's all these inspiring stories about young Muslim women who are calling the aunties and uncles in the masjid and telling them that, you know, they're going to medical school or they're in public health programs and that the vaccine is safe and that it's halal and that, in fact, it's part of the Islamic idea of serving the common good and that there's a vaccine clinic in the masjid and they should come. A huge part of this is the respectful way people engage in conversations with people who have questions. And an awful lot of that has to do with their identity, right? Some of this is doctrinal, you know, is the vaccine halal, did the vaccine use stem cells, that's doctrinal. But some of this is just, will I trust the person who I see in the masjid for Juma prayers every Friday? I know that person's a doctor and she is always looked out for me and that's the person I want to talk to about this. What our research is showing is that vaccine-hesitant people are excited to have conversations with people that they trust, which is often within their own ethnic and racial and faith community about the vaccine. The path to herd immunity runs through people's religious convictions. And actually, that is not just the next leg of the vaccine rollout. That was very much the initial leg also. Amongst the most vaccine questioning communities in the United States, for very good reason, are African-Americans. And that's because, you know, literally dangerous experimental studies have been done upon them in the past that have had ill health effects. And so there's very real reason for them to say, are you experimenting on my body again? And it was black clergy who did their own research and conversations with public health authorities and scientists about the vaccine, became comfortable with it themselves, and have led their congregants to the vaccine in a variety of extremely inspiring ways. And so we have seen this work with an enormously important religious and racial community in the United States. And our research shows that it could work with other important communities. I am hopeful. We're in the ground game phase of this now in the United States. And so, you know, it's not gonna be like tens of thousands of people getting max vaccinations anymore in geographical areas. It's gonna be hundreds here and thousands there and maybe a few dozen here and there. And that's gonna happen through information sessions at faith communities, and it's gonna happen in intimate conversations between congregants, and inshallah, God willing, it does happen. That was Ibu Patel, president of Chicago's Interfaith Youth Corps. Still to come here on this special edition of The Curator, we take a closer look at the rise in vaccine hesitancy and ask why some residents of Hong Kong are rejecting the jab. Stay tuned. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems, 
and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. You are with a special edition of The Curate, where we are recapping our series examining the rise of vaccine hesitation. I am Marcus Hippi. For our third installment of the series, we cross to Asia, to the city-state of Hong Kong, where vaccine hesitancy among residents is fast becoming a cause for concern. To unpack the unique political factors that underpin hesitancy among the city-state's population, Hong Kong-based reporter Karina Choi filed this report. The government will set up community vaccination centers in all 18 districts in Hong Kong to provide COVID-19 vaccinations for members of the public. People must make a reservation on the designated website's 24-hour booking system. Hong Kong has effectively contained and controlled surges of COVID-19. Since January last year, the city of 7.5 million has recorded less than 12,000 cases and roughly 200 deaths. Much of Hong Kong's success in keeping case numbers down is attributed to its experience handling the 2003 SARS epidemic. But in recent months, this success has not been replicated in the government's drive to get Hong Kongers vaccinated. Many who are desperate for their vaccines abroad wonder why this is the case. In Hong Kong, injections are free, abundant, and available to anyone above the age of 16. Most residents have the option of choosing between the China-made Sinovac jab and the German-developed BioNTech shot. So why is choice and convenience alone not enough to persuade citizens to take part in the government's inoculation program? And in what way does Hong Kong's unique political situation play into the population's hesitancy? Over the last few months, we've been tracking people's attitudes towards vaccination, their intention to get vaccinated and other things. And one thing we've seen fairly consistently since January is there's a minority of people who do not want to get vaccinated. Maybe something like 20% of people really don't want to get vaccinated. There's another minority, maybe 10 to 20% of people who really do want to get vaccinated almost as soon as they can. And everybody else is in the middle. Ben Cowling is a professor of epidemiology and biostatistics at the Hong Kong University School of Public Health. Last week, we sat down and spoke about his research into vaccine hesitancy. According to the professor, around 60% of residents in Hong Kong have yet to make a decision about taking their shots. It's not that they don't want to get vaccinated, they're just waiting. We don't know what they're waiting for, but they're waiting. Maybe they don't want to go first. Maybe they want to know more about the vaccines. Maybe there's no urgency because in Hong Kong, we haven't got a lot of COVID cases right now. At the same time, there's no other kind of immediate benefit for people to get vaccinated. For example, at the moment, we're doing quarantine of close contacts of cases. And whether or not you've been vaccinated, you still have to go to quarantine. The government has started introducing incentives to urge the public to take their injections. These include allowing vaccinated residents to dine in restaurants for extended hours, visit family members in hospitals, and participate in a travel bubble to Singapore. But are these incentives really that appealing, and are they enough? Esther Chan is the Asia-Pacific Bureau Editor of First Draft. 
Her research specifically addresses how online discourse and misinformation are prompting vaccine hesitancy around the world. She believes incentives are only a short-term solution and don't address the fundamental problems causing the skepticism. According to her latest findings, one of the biggest factors contributing to vaccine hesitancy in Hong Kong is a grave mistrust the in the government. Started, Hong Kong just kind of came out from that um, 2019 protest. And then during the whole pandemic last year, we had national security law. We had lots of things happening, you know, prosecution of pro-democracy figures, etc., etc. So when you look at it that way, and it doesn't really matter what people's political leaning is, right? Whether they're pro-democracy or pro-China or whatever, but when there's so many things happening in society, it's, it feels really unstable. So logically, people would question whether the government has their interest at heart, whether it's the Hong Kong government or the Chinese government. So you would be questioning the Hong Kong government's uh, procurement of the kind of vaccines they're giving you. And on the other hand, you think about the Chinese government and you're like, well, because of what's happening in the society, I don't know, you know, whether we can trust their vaccine. Sinovac was the first vaccine to be approved for emergency use in Hong Kong. When the vials arrived in late February, the city's chief executive, Carrie Lam, and other top government officials took the China-made injection in a public broadcast to inspire confidence in the vaccine. Uh, I do feel uh, quite um, strongly that this is a time really to get tough. In fact, in any epidemic control measures, it's the three buzzwords. One has to be rapid. One has to be precise. Third is tough. In every of that, the three buzzwords, there is still room for improvement. Here's Dr. Cowling again. In the early days of the vaccination campaign in Hong Kong, when both vaccines were available, we did see a lot of enthusiasm from the government for the sign of that vaccine. But in the medical community, I don't think there's been a lot of pressure one way or the other. People are able to make their own minds up. Over a dozen deaths have been reported some days and weeks after elderly residents took their vaccines, a majority of which were Sinovac. And while medical researchers in Hong Kong have determined that there were no causal links between the vaccine and subsequent deaths, at the moment, less than 5% of people above the age of 80 have received their vaccines in Hong Kong. Among those sitting on the fence about the vaccine is Stephen, a barista in his early 30s. Stephen is an avid consumer of local media and says that reading stories about people dying after taking their vaccines has been enough to deter him from getting his free shot. I'm sure if there was only one death as a result of the vaccine, people won't be as scared. But there have been over a dozen cases. Even just seeing the words death and vaccine in the same sentence is enough to frighten most people. I'm 30 years old, so I understand that I'm at a low risk of dying from the vaccine. But what if I become the world's first 30-year-old to die from the jab? That's terrifying. If the government acted faster and was more proactive in shutting borders at the start of the pandemic, we wouldn't be in this compromising position. Now, they're basically forcing us to get the vaccine. If the Chinese government effectively contained the virus from the start, there would be no reason to waste so much time, effort, money and manpower to get the whole world vaccinated. Based on what's happened in Hong Kong over the past two years, a lot of young people do not trust in the government. Now, if you add COVID into the mix, there's more reason for people not to put their faith in the government. So, I don't feel particularly obliged to take any vaccine. Since the start of the pandemic, Beijing has increasingly taken control over the city's political infrastructure, 
most significantly by imposing a national security law to clamp down on political dissent. While places like the US, Singapore, and New Zealand have found ways to carry out elections during this time, authorities in Hong Kong postponed the city's Legislative Council elections, then later disqualified four pro-democracy candidates, prompting the rest of Hong Kong's opposition camp to resign. Recently, nearly 50 pro-democracy figures were arrested for holding an unofficial primary for the city's Legislative Council elections. They were charged under the national security law for supposed conspiracy to commit subversion. Many of them still remain behind bars. Among those arrested are people with a demonstrated track record of persuading public opinion. Those who could have perhaps acted as reasonable and trusted leaders in encouraging the public to get vaccinated. So can a vaccine-hesitant society skeptical of its government move forward along the path of immunization? Hong Kong may have plenty of vaccines, but the will of its residents is lacking. Better incentives and communication might help, but complacency, inconsistent COVID protocols, and the distrust fueled by a tense political landscape ultimately leave the fate of Hong Kong's vaccine drive in the balance. For Monocle in Hong Kong, I'm Karina Choi. That was Hong Kong reporter Karina Choi. For part four of the series, we find ourselves in the UK and turn our attention to the complex reasons for the worryingly low vaccine uptake in ethnic minority communities. It's a notable problem. In the UK, just 64% of black over 50s had been vaccinated by April, compared with 93% of white people of the same age. To find out more about this alarming discrepancy and the potential solutions, we spoke to Dr. Samantha van der Slot, a researcher at the Oxford Vaccine Group at the University of Oxford, who specialises in health sociology. The statistics are telling us that ethnic minorities in the UK are more at risk. The connection between those two things is that non-white people, minorities in Britain, have been disproportionately affected by COVID. Uh, and the challenge that we have is to... Dear mums and dads. Grandparents. Aunties. Uncles, brothers, sisters, nephews, nieces, sons, daughters, cousins. It's a tricky question why ethnic minorities uh, might be hesitant about vaccination, because we see on kind of the bigger country surveys that doesn't always come out in trying to track people's opinions. And it's only been when vaccines have been rolled out and we've seen low uptake that this has been presented as more of a problem. And then we also have this challenge that ethnic minorities are kind of grouped into one big BAME black and Asian minority ethnic group. And you don't always see that distinction between uh, the attitudes and behaviours of different parts of uh, that larger group. I try not to identify myself as BAME, um, instead British Indian, because that's what I am. I refer to myself as black or black British. Kurdish or British. I'm a British Ghanaian. We've heard reports from ethnic groups that they are sceptical of government-backed communication drives. And that's mainly been coming from scepticism of governments in general and the health system. And that stems from historic reasons and also maybe more recent experiences with the health system. And also we've heard from refugee and asylum groups where they've had 
challenging dealings with the government over their claims. And if you see what's happened with Windrush generation, those sorts of treatments of minority groups within the UK in other areas of policy do then feed into how much you will trust the government in regards to vaccination include existing health inequalities. For example, BAME people are more likely to suffer from heart disease, kidney disease, diabetes and hypertension. These are all illnesses which increase your risk of dying from COVID if you get it. We definitely know that Black Asian and minority ethnic groups have been disproportionately affected by COVID. Some of the studies have shown that up to 15% of this group are likely to have worse outcomes in hospitals going in with more severe illness and have a higher chance of death also and this seems to be for a number of reasons for example many ethnic groups make up a high proportion of the health providers in the uk also in other countries as well so they've had a higher exposure to covid19 and also uh, the way that you have family setups and larger family groups living together really quite socially networked ways of living. And that does feed into having higher cases and unfortunately higher death rates from COVID-19. What is encouraging in the UK is that even though uptake was slower in, in groups, especially the South Asian group at one point, and that's continued a bit also early on with um, Black British people as well, that that has improved. And I think that's been down to a mixture of things, really getting the message across about how important it is to vaccinate and how the benefits outweigh the risks and using role models and community groups to try and get that communication across. Playing into that is also access, and I think trying to make it as easy and straightforward as possible to, to be vaccinated also plays a role, because it isn't always, if you see low uptake, that that's down to attitudes. It might also be that it's just not as easy or straightforward to be vaccinated if you're from a certain ethnic group. Thinking about effective strategies for actually growing the trust between governments and communities, I think um, it's going to be a long-term effort and it involves both investment in services, in immunisation services, so that doctors and health providers can have conversations with people and actually address questions and concerns they might have. And then I think as part of that, it's also a long-term communication campaign involving role models and also, as I mentioned, community groups where you, you keep on that communication channel and keep it open so that as we see stories of fake news coming out, those can be addressed quite quickly and we know where to point people to when they are concerned about a message going around. The effects of vaccine messaging will really be around with us for a long time and we need to make sure that we're getting that messaging right now because if things fail and things go wrong it's going to be very hard to recover from that and we've seen that from controversies with the MMR vaccine the measles mumps and rubella vaccine where there was a discredited link with autism but that connection still remains 
So I think this is something that we're going to be worrying about for a lot longer outside of the COVID-19 pandemic. In Health Watch, with outbreaks of the measles reported in several states, researchers hope a new study will again reassure parents that vaccine... A new large study finds the measles, mumps and rubella vaccine does not increase the risk of autism. The new study, if we needed it, puts to rest... A student at the School of Hygiene Uh, Andrew Wakefield and colleagues published a short paper in The Lancet suggesting that measles vaccine could cause autism. This uh, was subsequently retracted, but at the time it caused great concern nationally and internationally and measles vaccine coverage rates fell from well... This is why we need careful scientific studies. And as I've outlined here, there have been many, many such studies that have failed to find any real evidence to support the hypothesis that vaccines cause autism. I think this is a chance to improve people's view of vaccinations and have a more positive view. So I think we've been looking towards vaccines as a way out of the pandemic. And in some ways, there's been some very high demand for for new vaccines, which is quite encouraging. But what I'm concerned about is how sometimes populations are treated as if they can't cope with the reality of vaccines, which is something we need to consider going forward. So knowing that there will always be a small risk with vaccines. I think there's a fear within the public health community that if you bring in any question about vaccines, that's going to put people off them. But I think we have to confront the reality that there might be challenges. Not not every health intervention is 100% risk-free. So it's getting quite a complex message across, but I think that's treating people as being able to make their own decisions. That was Dr. Samantha van der Slot from the Oxford Vaccine Group. As we have seen throughout this series, COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy has taken hold in a wide range of communities. But for our final instalment, we wanted to know how much of an impact can a lack of uptake actually have. We spoke to Monocle's health and science correspondent, Dr. Chris Smith, to understand why the vaccine is the best hope of ending the pandemic and how even the smallest gaps in global uptake could undermine the response thus far. In order to control the coronavirus, apart from public health measures like lockdowns, which are a blunt instrument, very costly on many levels, our surefire way out of this is the same way we found our way out of previous scrapes in the past, and that is with vaccination. Because what this does is it prevents people from succumbing to severe disease, and in a very significant number of cases, it also stops them catching and passing on the infection. And that's been the headache with this coronavirus because about half of people have few or such few symptoms that when they catch it that they don't know they've got it. So they therefore go around spreading it. So breaking that chain of transmission is very critical. Silent spreaders could be responsible for about half of all coronavirus cases. 59%, that is the number of transmissions by people who don't even know that they're sick, and those people are unknowingly becoming the new source of outbreaks. Now, the study was done by the, the single CDC biggest false assumption uh, that we made was about the potential for asymptomatic transmission. If we don't get people taking the vaccine at a sufficient level, then we leave threaded through society conduits through which infection can flow. And that means we'll maintain a chain of transmission and then the pandemic won't go away. Our current estimates are 
and these are purely based on guesstimates because we just don't know at the moment and we don't have the benefit yet of data. We think we have to achieve something in the region of 70, 75, maybe 80% vaccination rates in order to curtail the spread of the infection. That's based on what we've really done in the past with other vaccines and other disorders and diseases that spread in a similar way to the new coronavirus and are equivalently infectious to the new coronavirus. One thing to bear in mind, though, is that doesn't mean 75% of the population at one end of the age spectrum. That means about 75 to 80% of the population across the age spectrum. And therein lies the current wrinkle, because in the majority of countries, the vaccine effort has been focused in quite a polarised way, with good reason, towards those most at risk. And those most at risk are older people, which means there's actually a very significant population of younger people who are currently unvaccinated, down at the region of maybe... 80-90% of those. And those are the people, critically, who are more likely to have more friends, go out more, more often in work, on public transport, and therefore have more risk factors for transmitting the infection. Stamping out the virus means you've got to stop it where it spreads. And where it spreads most is going to have a whole range of factors behind it, which uh, we need to look at. We're learning them, and they range from sort of social and demographic reasons through to age and, and pre-existing health conditions. But I think in the long run, it just means we've got to get to as many people as possible with vaccines as promptly as possible so that we can stamp the virus down before it comes back with a variant that can bypass the protection conferred by these vaccines. The world is a giant community, and when we say pandemic, the word pandemic comes from Greek pan, all, demos, people. It's basically afflicting everybody everywhere, which is why we all agree it's not over everywhere till there's no COVID anywhere. And the only way we can achieve that is by stamping it out everywhere. And there are therefore important considerations behind not having a I'm all right, Jack mentality, because if we ignore countries with lots of people in them, lots of deprivation and therefore lots of COVID, we're potentially brewing up the variant that will come back to bite us. Bleak day dawned in Delhi. The official number of deaths reached a new high at the same time that it was acknowledged tests are failing to identify large numbers. As India's streets empty because of localised lockdowns, burial grounds and crematoriums continue to work day and night. These raging fires will continue all day and through the evening. The surge in case has been so much that there's a waiting really for these bodies to be put on the pyre by family members. When the pandemic first began to grow and we realised that we were in this for the long haul and we realised that we needed vaccines to rescue us and this was in the first half of last year, 2020. At that time, people were very sceptical indeed in many first world countries and in fact a number of, of eminent researchers conducted studies that suggested that for instance if you pulled a person off the street in America and said to them I've got a vaccine against coronavirus would you like it in some cases half of people were saying no thanks that has changed and the number of people who are now vaccine hesitant in America has fallen considerably the number in the UK has fallen considerably. It was never as high as the vaccine hesitant rates in America, but it was high in certainly some communities. But what we predicted would happen, and I think 
you know, this is speculation on my part, but I think has been manifest, is that people who were initially sceptical, because it's quite right that people should want to know what they're putting into their body and what it does to them and should want to be reassured by good solid data of proving safety. But I think those more sceptical people have probably seen the fact that millions of people in older age groups have now had these vaccines, that the vaccines are performing well, they're performing safely, and as a result, people are not losing lives. We estimate that tens of thousands of lives have already been saved by vaccination. Uh, these vaccines are safe, they've, uh, they've saved many thousands of lives and people should uh, come forward uh, to get their jabs and we'll make sure that they get the right jabs. And that is giving confidence to people who previously might have been more sceptical and more hesitant. In order to get the confidence of the public it's really important that politicians put their money where their mouth is and they act accordingly. You cannot have a situation where you're saying you do this and it's a case of do what I say not what I do. You have to lead from the front. Initially, back in January, President Emmanuel Macron questioned the vaccine's effectiveness for people over 65. Then, the country, along with several others, acted on its own, suspending AstraZeneca without final recommendations from the European regulator. There were certain politicians in the previous few months who have not been helpful, I think, in the vaccine initiative because people won't see these vaccines necessarily as individual entities. They will see the vaccine against coronavirus as an entity. And therefore, if one lets the side down, it damages the brand for everybody. And this was always a criticism that uh, if we end up with one of these vaccines that doesn't work or it produces serious side effects or harms people or is found to have a problem, this would considerably bolster vaccine hesitancy. We need to make sure that everyone's on board because if we don't solve this problem everywhere, it's never going to go away because it will keep on coming back. It will seed itself back into populations frequently because people are mobile, people travel, diseases go with them. And this will not stay confined to one place. It started in one corner of one city in one country and very quickly has taken over the lives of every single one of us in every corner of the world, pretty much. That will keep repeating itself, that recipe, if you end up with this virus taking up residence in poor places with poor public health measures, poor surveillance and, and poor abilities to intervene. So for that reason, we have to make sure that those communities and those communities where that sort of thing can happen can happen anywhere on earth. And therefore, we have to make sure that everyone's on board. And the best way to do that is with clear communication and clear information so everyone understands where they stand, where the planet as a whole, you know, the human population stands and what we can do to get ourselves out of this. That was Monaco's health and science correspondent, Dr. Chris Smith. And that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. Our series on vaccine hesitancy was produced by Paige Reynolds and edited by Steph Chungu. This show was produced by Sam Impey and presented by me, Marcus Hippi. Join us again next week for a special Eurovision edition of The Curator, hosted by our culture correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Be sure to tune in for that. Thanks for listening.